I shared with uh, Salise this morning that uh, I really love Psalm 27. Can I read 27? And that, uh, and uh, she said, well, we can find somebody else to read if you want to. And uh, I go, no, I, I really want to. But I want to, uh, the first part of Psalm 26. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord, and I have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance of your uh, faithfulness. And in reality, in real life, that is not me. But it is me in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, that is who I am. And uh, so uh, with that, I want to take... Uh, and uh, Aaron Bradley is here as a, a guest speaker, and uh, uh, I will say a short prayer and then uh, invite you up, okay? Father, um, help us to settle our minds this morning and, our, and open our hearts to your love and to your grace. Help us to open our hearts to the message that uh, Aaron's going to bring to us. Help us to live in love for you and love of others and fellowship with you and others, uh, other believers on, in God's family. Uh, we just come together to want to celebrate you and to honor you with our faith and our love. And uh, may this transform us through the week and uh, help us to settle into what is really important, and that is uh, the grace that you have given us and, uh, and, and adopted us into your family. I say this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Let me double check them on. Oh, there, oh yeah. Now we're going. Well, good morning, my name is Aaron Badley and greetings from Spokane, Washington and Indian Trail Church. Know that uh, my family in particular has uh, just been blessed by y'all visiting over the years, and that's crazy to think. I got two kids coming out now. It's wild, so. But uh, as uh, Jordan, I believe, was sharing earlier, what a blessing to visit the saints. And so as much as that's a blessing to you all, I hope you know we are blessed by your shared fellowship as well. So we'll be in Psalm 36 this morning. Psalm 36. Go ahead and turn there. And uh, I just wanted to pray for you all before I started this morning, if you don't mind. And we'll read from God's Word. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that as sheep, you are our door. You are our good shepherd. Lord, you lay your life down for your sheep. You see that not one of us is lost. And when we go astray... You leave the 99 to take the one to safety because that's the charge you've received from your father and you've taken this charge and obeyed that perfectly. Lord, we are sinners. We've sinned gravely against you as our creator in various ways. Lord, you know this more than we do. We, may we feel sorrow and regret that would lead to repentance for these things that would wholeheartedly desire the grace that is through your Son. 
Lord, we're thankful that we have a high priest and a savior who can fully sympathize with us in our weakness, in our humanity. So much so that we have confidence when we approach your throne and we pray that we would do that this very morning. Lord, you're always more ready to hear than we are when we pray, even as we share. But we ask, Lord, that you would pour down the abundance of your mercy, that you would forgive us of those things that even our consciences are afraid to speak. And you would give us the things in which, in our frail prayers, we're even afraid to ask, Lord. But may these be so through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. Psalm 36. Please follow along with me as I read. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is God's word. Well, on the whole, uh, humanity agrees on very little. For any topic or discussion, there are no universal points of agreement. However, there seems to be at least one general exception to that rule, and that exception is this. Everyone agrees that something is wrong. Right? Everyone agrees that something is wrong. Almost all of humanity now and throughout history agrees that something is wrong in this world, and yet that's pretty much where all the agreement starts and ends. Once you begin to clarify but by what people mean by something is wrong, nobody agrees. For example, once you ask what is wrong, no agreement. Right? People will answer from anything from economics to gender dynamics to a lack of good vibes or, or anything in between. And not only that, but then you ask people how we fix what is wrong with the world and you get just as many or more differences in answers, right? What's the solution? You know, more taxes, less taxes, or overthrow this, or conserve that. More health care reform, less health care reform, increased military presence here, decreased military presence here, et cetera, et cetera. So for, for every answer or solution you hear, history, world events, they'll give you thousands of competing and 
contradictory answers for what's wrong with this world, and, and consequently, just as many competing answers to fix it. Now this morning, we're going to hear the foundational answer to this conundrum. This morning, the solution to what's wrong with the world is to hope in God. That's the solution. That's where we're going this morning. The, the solution is hope in God. It's that simple. That, that is the foundational and fundamental solution to what is wrong in this world. But that doesn't answer the question. What's wrong with this world? Well, Psalm 36 answers this too. And not only does Psalm 36 give us the solution, but it also explains the nature of the problem. And when you break down evil or sin or transgressions in this world, when you trace its roots all the way back to its source, this psalm, your Bible, it gives a very consistent and a very concerning answer. It's not politics. It's not financial inequality. It's, it's neither communism nor, nor capitalism. It's you. As humans, we are dead. We are sick inside. Each and every one of us. So sin, evil, it's, it's not something out there that just happens to us. Instead, sin is something that intrudes and infects our very souls, our hearts. We are susceptible to sin by nature. And this morning, the psalmist will call us to hope in God. That's the solution. The reason we're called to hope in God is because there's something wrong with who we are. There's something wrong with who we are. That's the first reason we hope in God. We must hope in God first and foremost because of who we are. And we are the problem. So look again at the text. Look at the, game of the text, verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. So transgression speaks to the heart, to the inner man, to our most basic desires and wants. That's what transgression speaks to. And that's because, naturally, our hearts, our basic wants and desires, they're alive. They're very alert to sin's voice. In other words, here's what the text doesn't say. The text does not say, transgression speaks to foreign policy. Nope, nope. Transgression speaks to rich people only. Nope. Transgression speaks to drug addicts only. Also no. Right? Transgression speaks to hearts. Transgression speaks to the heart of every man and woman. And not only is the heart where our wants and our desires flow from, but the human heart is weak, corrupt. And because our hearts are weak and corrupt, Transgression or sin speaks to our hearts and it speaks convincingly. Listen to how the Bible describes the problem with our hearts. 
This is from Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Before the episode of Noah and the ark and early in Genesis, which you guys are preaching through, is that correct? Nice. I don't know where you're at, but so if you're past Genesis 6, you heard this, right? Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jesus himself will warn of the effects of the hearts in one of his parables. In Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says this, Matthew 15. He says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So from the heart, from our wants and desires, proceed all our actions, all our words, our thoughts. And sin knows exactly how to speak to your heart. One of the first effects of sin on a human heart is to no longer fear God. One of the first effects of sin on the human heart is to no longer fear God. Look again at verse 1. It says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. This is fun. We move from the heart to the eyes. So because of sin in our hearts, we no longer see the world in light of who God is. Now fear, fear may be an uncomfortable word to hear tossed around about how we relate to God. But fear of God, if you've read Proverbs and other pieces of your Bible, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And maybe think of it like this, just a short, short illustration. If you're tempted to, God forbid, you know, speed or road rage, Fear of the law, fear of the consequences would be considered the beginning of wisdom, right? You're living in light of a greater law and greater things. And that's, that's exactly how Proverbs explains the fear of God. Fear of God is the, the beginning of wisdom. But when transgression or sin speaks deep in our hearts, that fearful wisdom goes out the window we begin to see the world with different colored glasses. We no longer see the world in light of God, in light of who he is. Well, what do we do then? Well, verse 2 goes on to explain more of what the evildoer does. Verse 2 says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So a deceived heart at first fails to fear God. Then our hearts continue to deceive us to the point of believing that our evil cannot be found out and hated. 
But the text is actually more specific than that. Did you catch it? It says, the wicked person flatters himself. Flatters himself. To arrive at this level of deception, not only do we abandon belief in God, fear of God, but we also create a replacement. We, we create a flattering view of ourselves. This is how sin works. There's no exception here. Pride, envy, adultery, theft, dishonoring your parents, authorities, you just name any sin. This is the exact equation. This is the exact equation. You first abandon a proper fear of God, and then you see the world through your own self-flattery, false image. So, abandon fear of God, and then you see the world through your own false image and self-flattery. Destroying life and ceasing to do good, you're not rejecting evil, as the psalm explains. And it might be a noteworthy exercise, a helpful exercise to go home and think about just a specific sin that you know you struggle with. And then run it through Psalm 36. See exactly where you need to soberly reevaluate your thinking and then repent. And personally, for me, there was a time in my life where I allowed bitterness and anger to overcome my heart. And I lived for years the play-by-play of Psalm 36. Transgression spoke to me and wickedness deep in my heart, and I gave in. And and I hope you hear me saying this like in a, in a real world, that you know, sinful things certainly happened to me and my family. But in my pride, I began to believe that the same error didn't exist in my own heart. And through my own self-flattery, I fulfilled the very thing I was unwilling to admit. Namely, I also am the problem. Because you see, transgression, it turns out, it wasn't unique to my enemies. Transgression spoke to my heart just as powerfully. And I fell. And the same is true for all of us. Romans 3 makes this clear, quoting Psalm 36. Romans 3, verse 11 through 18 reads this way. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God for their eyes. This psalm calls us to hope in God. But first, Psalm 36 verses 1 through 4 is very clear about who we are and we are the wicked. Transgression speaks to our sick hearts. And that's the first reason we hope in God. We hope in God first because of who we are. First and foremost, we hope in God is the solution because we are the problem. We hope in God because there's actually no hope in ourselves. We hope in God because there's no hope in ourselves. 
with no transition whatsoever, uh, the psalmist shifts from the wicked descent of man to the character of God. He shifts from the descent of man to the character of God. This is instructive for us. As people who battle sin, how slow are we to shift our eyes to the Lord and to his character? Because unlike the wicked, in their eyes, who have no fear of God, the psalmist knows that the solution is found only in God and who he is. And yet, what hope is there for the wicked in light of a holy and perfect God? We'll look again at the text, starting in verse 5. And let's see how the, let's see how the psalmist gives us hope in who God is. This is verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. So unlike the wicked who have no fear of God before their eyes, the psalmist turns his eyes to the attributes of God. So faced with the wickedness of mankind, the psalmist wastes no time adjusting his focus to the solution, which is God himself, who God is. This is the second reason we hope in God. We hope in God because of who God is. We hope in God because of who God is. And let me highlight the way that the psalm does this. It's, it's very intentional. It's, it's through repetition. So listen to this. It's, it's very intentional, very strategic writing. Uh, let me read these verses again, but with uh, an awkward emphasis. Are you ready? Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So just in case you missed it, everything is attributed to God. These qualities of God are artfully described. They're very visual, just like the wicked being described by different organs of the body, eyes, hearts. But God is described in these, these sweeping geographic terms. So mountains, clouds, heavens, all the way to the deep, meaning the depths of the sea, uh, like a river, a fountain. His qualities are limitless, in essence. God is, he's presented as this consistent and abundant source of all his wonderful qualities. In addition to being limitless, his qualities are lavish. They're, they're extravagant. And in other words, it's not as if God is uh, abundant in mediocrity. So rather, God's qualities, they're, they're precious. They're they're an opportunity for our souls to feast, to drink. His qualities give us comfort, refuge, intimacy, 
as it says, like a bird shielding her hatchlings under her wings. So in God, we, we actually get both, the, sorry, we get the best of both worlds with God. You think like economics for a second with me, sorry, but you think normally the more precious an item, the, the more scarce, consequently the more expensive and rare it is. So you think of maybe diamonds or gold or something. Okay, on the other hand, the more common, the more available and inexpensive the item, that's the other side of the equation, right? The more common, the more available, the more inexpensive. Think of like household items, clothing. But with God, we actually have both at the same time. We, we have both invaluable resources and a limitless abundance of them. Another way to say it is this. God never runs out of steadfast love, nor does his steadfast love diminish in quality. God never tires of being faithful to his promises, and his faithfulness is without flaw or fault. God never runs out of righteousness or moral purity, and his moral purity is excellent and beyond our sinful imagination. Consequently, God is the appropriate object of our gaze. Our gaze. No other being or thing could offer anything better than who God is and what God does. But one quality of God is highlighted above the rest. You probably noticed it. Steadfast love. Steadfast love. Steadfast love is repeated in verses 5, 7, and 10. This is verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. In verse 10. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you. This word for steadfast love, it's, it's fascinating and it's notoriously difficult to translate. Jesus and Jews of his day, they would have been likely most familiar with a translation of something like mercy. Other translations in English render this as something like loving kindness or just simply love. The word steadfast love, the reason I'm saying this is because it's used in critical passages of your Old Testament to describe God's affection for his people. So steadfast love, it's used in your Old Testament to describe God's affection for his people and I want to give you one example of the people of God here. This is the book of Exodus. When Moses asks to see God's glory, God passes by, and he gives this speech to Moses in Exodus 34. He says, or it reads, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So steadfast love, it's repeated in Psalm 36, and in your Bible, not because God is somehow more love than righteousness or 
more love than faithful. That's, that's not what we're saying. Rather, for sinful humanity, God's qualities of faithfulness, righteousness, judgments, they're not good news at all unless God also possesses a steadfast love towards his people, a merciful love that does not waver, never runs out. And because God has this love, then his faithfulness is to our good. Because God has this love, then his righteousness and his judgments are to our benefit rather than our demise. And this is why the psalmist prays for God's steadfast love to continue in verse 10. He prays, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. There's no better news the psalmist could offer than a God whose steadfast love continues in a limitless and lavish fashion, whose righteousness and justice is ours to have. So the psalmist, he's explained the problem, which is who we are, wicked. He's explained the solution to that problem by telling us who God is. Therefore, the application, the psalmist places his hope in God, knowing that God's character and qualities are sufficient for him to believe in, even despite observing the wickedness of humanity around him. However, this, this still presents a conundrum for us. How might we transition from wickedness to knowing God? How do we go from deceived hearts to uprightness of heart? In other words, is, is this even good news? There are numerous passages in the Bible that illustrate how we transition from darkness to light. And metaphors like children of wrath to children of God. One of the clearest examples I could think of was Ephesians chapter 2. And go ahead and actually turn there if you are able. Ephesians chapter 2. I've chosen this because it, it not only tells us how we're made children of God, but but Ephesians 2 uses the clear language of rich mercy and love, which is precisely what Psalm 36 promises about God. And, and listen to how this even models the structure of Psalm 36, where it starts with the wicked and then it transitions you to the character of God. So it's Ephesians 2, starting verse 1. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is not work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So that's Psalm 36, 1 through 4, right? But verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it has been by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's steadfast love for us in Psalm 36, Ephesians 2, it's rich and it's sufficient to save. God's steadfast love is extended to those who are deserving of wrath those who lived only to gratify their desires of their sinful hearts. There can be no doubt at this point. There's no excuse for the wicked. None. God has expressed his kindness to us. He has gone public in a way that cannot be ignored or explained away. The accomplishments of Christ Jesus, dying for our sins, taking God's wrath, rising from the dead, preparing good works for us. God's done it all out of who he is. Namely, rich in mercy. And as sinners, there's always the option to turn from sin, to believe what God has done in Jesus Christ. With the same logic in Psalm 36, Psalm 36 also gives no excuse to the wicked when it says in verse 6, Man and beast you save, O God. God is able, willing to save. Yet what could possibly prevent us from hoping in such a great God and receiving his steadfast love? We'll look again at Psalm 36, verse 11. It reads, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. So there's two. There's two enemies that threaten our hope in God. The first is arrogance, pride. Pride was the great downfall of the wicked in verse 1. It's also what the children of God prayed to avoid in verse 11 here. Humility is what allows us to see God as God and to see ourselves in need of God. I'm going to say that again. Humility is what allows us to see God as God and to see ourselves in need of God. Arrogance is what prevents us from seeing God as God and from seeing ourselves in need of God. Well, how might we be humble? It's just like Psalm 36 recommends. We achieve humility by thinking more of God and who he is and by thinking less about ourselves and who we are. So we do the opposite of the wicked in verses 1 through 4. The opposite of those who do not fear God, but instead flatter themselves in their own eyes. But on the other hand, we behold a wondrous God thinking little of ourselves other than 
recipients of his abundance. Failure to do this is devastating. It's the difference between receiving refuge in the shadow of God's wings on the one hand and being thrust down, unable to rise on the other hand. So arrogance is the first threat. The second threat is the wicked who actively attempt to drive away the righteous. It's the wicked who actively attempt to drive away the righteous. Or as a psalmist puts it, it's to not let the hand of the wicked drive me away. Now, near the beginning of this sermon, we noted how humanity agreed maybe on one thing, that there's a problem in this world. There's a problem with this world. But humanity agrees on little else, much less the solution, right? But it can't be a surprise, therefore, that when we see God as our true and only hope, trusting in his steadfast love towards us in Christ Jesus, we cannot be surprised when the rest of humanity disagrees. When deceived people who have no fear of God before them actively then oppose God and his people in their arrogant self-deception. When wicked people attempt to drive away the children of God. But the demise of the wicked is certain. Listen to verse 12. Look at the text. Verse 12 says, There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And there's no mysteries to who thrust down evildoers. It's, it's God himself. That's why the psalmist cries out to God and appeals to his steadfast love to deliver him from wicked men. It's because he knows God is, as we read, he's faithful, righteous, just. And when we consider our own response to wickedness, it should model Psalm 36. We should be fully aware that what's wrong with the world is the power of sin that tempts every heart of every person. We are the problem. And the solution to the problem, it's not gloating over the wicked. It's not exulting in pride. Nothing like that. Instead, those who have turned to God for salvation are to continue to look humbly upon the character of God, who God is, not letting the foot of arrogance come upon them. I'll give you these, these two pieces of application as you look at this world. Be wary to any solution, or be wary of any, of any solution to the problems of this world that do not appeal to God's character, particularly his steadfast love, to those who trust him. So be wary of any solution that doesn't appeal to God's character. Second, be wary of any solution to the world's problems that provoke you to pride and arrogance. Be wary of any solution that provokes you to pride and arrogance. Because surely, as we've read, surely that's the voice of the wicked looking to drag your eyes from your God and Savior. Instead, we hope in God's qualities, not our own. We hope in God because there's no hope in ourselves. 
And it's with this posture that we confront wickedness, both within our own souls and in the world. With that, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for this time to hear from your word. We're thankful for who you are, the qualities that you have manifested throughout history in your word, particularly in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that by the power and dwelling of your Holy Spirit, we would continue to keep our gaze steady upon you, to not let arrogance and pride ultimately bring us down and fall into the same errors of the wickedness and evil that we are saved from. We pray that as a church we'd adopt these behaviors in humility, understanding that we were once children of wrath and that now we are children and sons and daughters of light. And for that to change not only our view of you, but our view of a watching world who so desperately needs your salvation. In your son's name we pray. Amen.